Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. More and more, we're getting questions about whether global equities, specifically US equities and more specifically US tech stocks, although sometimes about the Asian tech tigers as well, whether they're really overvalued, they've been such an extraordinary uh, opportunity for people to get massive growth in their portfolios over the last decade. But there's real concern that maybe maybe they've gone too far and yet everyone still wants to find the next Tesla. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Macken, the Chief Investment Manager of Montaka Global Investments. You might know them as Montaka because we've all been pronouncing it incorrectly to discuss <laughs> whether global tech can really continue to deliver its amazing returns. Andrew, thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Gemma. Nice to be here. So, Andrew... Your investment mandate is to invest in global growth, uh, so long-term winners in high-growth markets, which sounds a lot like tech. But also you've said that you want to avoid paying too much, which is something our investors are incredibly wary about and certainly appears to be a real risk for people who are interested in the tech space. Can you talk to me about how you can take your approach in the current market when you know, multiples are so extraordinary? Yeah, so it's exactly right that we're looking for long-term winners in attractive markets and uh, a lot of our holdings, you know, you could categorise as, as tech businesses. Um, what I would say, though, it's probably important to get out of the way right up front, you know, we don't identify as tech specialists, you know, exclusively. Um, we can and we do invest across a wide range of industries. It's just that, you know, over the last few years, not surprisingly um, to many of your listeners, um, many of the, the greatest opportunities uh, have been in the tech space and we believe continue to be in the tech space. Um, and, and you're absolutely right, uh, you know, it, Valuation is 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 and will always sort of remain, you know, the most important thing. If if you if you are overpaying, um, you know, it's very difficult to expect uh, outsized returns uh, when you're buying any asset, really. Um, so your question about multiples, uh, I guess, you know, are, are they too high? Um, you know, is is that a risk for investors? Um, and we get that a lot uh, from our clients as well. I guess I'd say a couple of things about multiples and, you know, here we're talking about it could be an earnings multiple, you know, so value of business divided by next year's earnings or, or it could be a sales multiple, so value of business divided by next year's sales or something like that. Um, I guess it's important to point out that there are a few uh, reasons why multiples could be high and obviously one is that, you know, stocks are just overvalued. Um, but there are others as well, and like there are legitimate reasons why um, multiples could be high. So, you know, one is obviously we're in a very low interest rate environment. So, um, you know, all else being equal, if, if you know, the prevailing set of interest rates from, you know, that the governments can borrow at was at 7% versus if they're at 0% like they are today, uh, well, then multiples should be much higher in the 0% environment than in the 7% environment. So um, now that's probably obvious to, to uh, you know, most people. Um, but what that means is that if you're comparing multiples 
today versus historical multiples, um, say to you know pre-GFC or even earlier, when interest rates were much higher, you just have to sort of be aware that multiples should legitimately be higher today, all else being equal just from that interest rate sort of dimension alone. Um, another reason why multiples could legitimately be higher, and this is now sort of thinking between different industries, um, is if you have a business which can grow its revenue fairly organically and, and doesn't have to invest a whole lot of capital in order to achieve said growth, um, you should all else being equal have a higher multiple than another business growing at the same rate who actually does need to invest a whole lot of capital to achieve that that growth. And that has implications for the technology space and particularly for the software space because, um, you know, software is a really, uh, it's like a really privileged um, industry, if you like, because, you know, the marginal cost of recreating software, you know, like copy paste is literally zero and the marginal cost of distributing software all around the world through the internet is literally zero. Um, that's not true for, you know, pretty much every other industry. Imagine if, you know, you're a, I don't know, like a, a rail business and, you know, if you want to grow your revenues, you've got to build more track and buy more trains and, you know, run more trains across the track and buy more fuel. And so, you know, you have to, you have to spend a lot more to get your growth. Um, so, the, you know, software and some of these software platforms that I'm sure we'll talk about today, um, uh, they do have a privileged set of economics and, and can often grow through network effects um, that require a significantly less capital to achieve said growth and if so facto should legitimately uh, have a higher multiple. Now, having said all that, probably the, the biggest challenge for investors you know, given that the way multiples are defined, you know, business value divided by current earnings or business value divided by current revenues, um, because the multiples are really just a function of what's happening today, like current earnings or current revenues, for a lot of these growth businesses and particularly in the in the technology space, you know, the, these businesses are in the early innings of uh, you know, multi-year or even multi-decade, you know, structural growth into very large addressable markets. And, and said another way, you know, the true earnings power of many of these businesses is going to come in the future, not today. But if you're looking at a multiple of today's revenues or earnings, then of course, it's going to look super high. And, and you've got to then assess, okay, is this high multiple an indication of overvaluation? Or is this high multiple uh, an indication that the future earnings power is just going to be so much larger uh, in the future than it is today? And, and you inevitably lead sort of the, the logical thought process then inevitably, inevitably leads to, um, you know, an attempted assessment at uh, what the future holds for that business and, you know, whether or not it can win or, or, you know, to what extent competition will will beat it or disrupt it down the track. And, and so you, you ultimately are trying to um, assess what will happen in the future and you're placing probabilities around, you know, possible scenarios. Um, so that's, <laughs> that's why investing is, is, is really, really hard. Um, but that gives a bit of a flavour for why I think um, multiples 
discussions around multiples are often simplistic and and multiples can be sort of really, really complex about what is actually implied and, and whether or not um, therefore stocks are overvalued or not. We're doing this podcast for a really long time. We've talked about tech stocks before, but that's an incredibly concise and useful summary, I think, for a lot of people, particularly anyone new to this as to why perhaps you would look at some sectors of the market, particularly tech, rather differently to other sectors. And I must say, because I was investing before, actually immediately after the tech wreck, so a lot of people got burnt really badly by believing what you just said, Um, but interest rates were at a completely different different level back then. Um, But believing that the the total addressable market was huge and that uh, the cost of distribution was zero and that things were going to be amazing forever and then ended up with no money. Um, Right. Well, it turned out to be right, but it was just like 20 years too early. So, um, yeah, yeah, timing's important as well, right? Yeah. So for a lot of people who who didn't have that early experience uh, of blowing up all their capital on high potential businesses that uh, that didn't quite get there. You've got some great examples of where the market has underestimated the long-term potential of a company or under, undervalued the, you know, the world's best businesses. And, and talking about coming out of the tech wreck is probably a great example. So it's an incredibly attractive opportunity investing in the world's best businesses if they're being undervalued, so long as there is a subsequent revaluation. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we've been really thinking about it a lot, you know, especially over the last five years. And, I mean, we, we continue we continue to grapple with it and, and, and learn and try to refine our process. But, um, you know, I mean, I was, I was, you know, originally trained as a, a, you know, a very conservative value investor where, you know, for every decision that you make along the, the valuation process or on the side of conservatism, um, you know, just value the base business, even if a business, even if, you know, said business might have um, possible future growth options that are not yet defined. And, you know, how could you be, possibly be ascribing a value to these things, um, you know, if they're not here today? I've, I've since, we've since sort of evolved that thinking. I mean, that that is, on the one hand, you say, well, conservatism is great. You, If, if you're super conservative, you can't lose money. Um, that's true. If, if you are overly conservative, um, especially for the world's very best and most advantaged businesses, um, such as a few that we've seen in the tech space, um, you know, such as your Amazons and, and your Facebooks and others, um, then you will potentially miss out on some like 10x, 20x multi-baggers. Uh, and, you know, that can be very, very costly just in terms of opportunity cost. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's dangerous to say, um, you know, for any business that you come across, you know, for my local coffee shop across the road, oh, well, you know, they, they could do this and they could do that. So it's worth a fortune. You know, you could just convince yourself of, of any valuation doing that. Um, so I'm not sort of advocating that approach for all businesses, but for the world's like very, very best and most advantaged businesses and, and businesses whose advantages just continue to strengthen. You really need to be careful when you are just valuing the base business, like the business that just exists today. Um, and you really do need to almost, you know, give give some thought and imagination to what they could do in the future with the various, you know, assets and advantages um, that they have. And, you know, if you think about 
you know, a lot of these mega tech names like, you know, your, your Microsoft, your, your Apple, your Amazon, Facebook, I mean, they're all spending like $30 billion Aussie dollars a year in R&D, which is, you know, like 100, more than 100 million Aussie dollars per day in R&D. Um, Google's spending even more, like Google's spending like, you know, 150 million per day in R&D. And by the way, that, that all gets expensed under the US accounting rules. That's just like straight through the P&L. Um, and, and so that just reduces your earnings. And, you know, the the implicit accounting assumption there is that you you get no return on that investment. That is just like pure expense um, with, with no future return. Now, the reality is, of course, that that's just a wildly conservative accounting assumption and that you know, much of that R&D is going to, you know, build new new products and new um, businesses and new revenue opportunities down the track that we're just not aware about. So it's, you know, not only are the, the current earnings understated because all of these R&D investments are expensed, um, but they're building towards something which is going to come in the future but has not yet materialised today. And so if you're not taking that into account as well, then you are likely to, um, miss out. Uh, you're likely to, you know, incorrectly assume or incorrectly conclude that you know business X is overvalued today, and and actually you'll end up, you know, not including it in your portfolio, and and then you'll miss out on a on a wonderful um, opportunity. So, I, I think you know where we get to is first of all we we isolate this approach just to the very the very best businesses today. Um, and and we basically say, you know, as long as we are not stupidly overpaying, um, you know, for the base business and, you know, the other things that we can see on the horizon, as long as we can kind of get in the ballpark that, you know, it's, it's reasonable, then we just want to hold on to these sorts of businesses because, you know, with their advantages, not only scale advantages, but in particular their data advantages, and that's, that's probably the big one which, you know, we've only just we're only just starting to scratch the surface on in terms of what these really big mega cap uh, tech businesses can do with their data. And I'm not talking about you know like violating privacy or anything like that. I'm talking about like genuine value adding products and services through artificial intelligence and stuff like that. I think we've only just started to scratch the surface there. And uh, of course, artificial intelligence advantages. Um, you know the, the 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 raw input. Well, there, t- there are two raw inputs into that. One is data, and the other is computing power. And computing power is totally commoditized, and um, data is sort of the, the scarce input. So, if you think about who owns who owns who who of the big players out there own the gigantic pools of data, and and are therefore you know in the best position to be able to drive AI advantages in the future. It is you know your bigger names like your your Googles and your Amazons and, and your Facebooks, et cetera. I love everything you're saying. I'm just trying to unpick the most interesting bits to ask next about. <laughs> um, I think what's most interesting as as an observer to what you're saying, so you're saying you concentrate your attention on the world's best companies. And yeah. I can see for even a novice investor that's absolutely critical so the next question then needs to be how do you define the world's best companies? I'll give you an Australian example because uh, I'm assuming this is not inside your universe, but I'm always fascinated by the arguments about Afterpay. You know, the groups who call it a tech company 
say that its total addressable market is effectively all developed economies um, and their entire sort of millennial consumer base, but also some older people. And that because this is a new way of doing things, not a new technology necessarily, but a new way of doing things, its uh, its potential is, is almost untapped at this point. And then you get other people who say it's effectively an unsecured credit provider with a fancy app, and that's pretty much it. And we should not view it any differently and that the assumptions about total addressable market and so on are grossly exaggerated. So how do you differentiate between those two different views of a single company and go, this is one where we do want to spend our time. This is one where we want to look at it and say it's got an extraordinary future rather than, you know, it's a sexy unicorn right now, but it might well not exist in five years. Yeah, I mean, what a what a great question. So the, the way we think about it, where we started right up front, what, what we try to identify are the, the long-term winners in attractive markets and, and we want to, you know, not not overpay for these. But, okay, so... so Long-term winner, attractive markets. So long-term winner is is really an assessment about, uh, and you've got to think about different scenarios that could play out with respect to a company, whether it's Afterpay or, or whoever, um, you know, dominating their market over time and you've assigned probabilities to different scenarios and whatnot. Perhaps the most important thing, however, is, is the attractive market piece, right? Because... Um, I think there are some investors out there who think if 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 a space is growing rapidly, it, it is by definition attractive. Um, and don't get me wrong; I mean, you 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 would love your market to be growing. Um, the faster, the better. But that is a sort of, I suppose, necessary but insufficient um, characteristic of an attractive market. What you also want are significant barriers to entry that will limit future competition in that space. And if you have a, you know, a, a rapidly growing market with very, very high barriers to entry, and then only, you know, a ideally one, but you know, even if it's just a small number of existing players who are dominating that space, then you can be much more confident that, that those, that small number of players will continue to dominate in the future, um, this attractive market primarily because those barriers to entry uh, exist. And, and if, if that happens, then what you would expect is that the, you know, a disproportionate share of the economics are captured, like in the value chain, are captured in the, the, the little part of the value chain that has a very high barriers to entry. Um, so let, a lot of, lot of sort of jargon in that description. Let me try to give you um, like a simple example of, of how we think about that. And... If you take um, like e-commerce today, which is just absolutely booming, like we have to be in the golden age of e-commerce and, you know, it's still like less than 20% penetrated in terms of like online sales, percentage of total sales in the US. And um, so, you know, it's still very much in the early innings of this, but what I'm sure as, as, as all your listeners are aware, you know, what happened in the pandemic is it just totally changed consumer behaviours and I love that statistic which relates to Q2 of last year but in in less than 90 days um, you know they did the Americans did four years of online shopping penetration uh, in, in less than 90 days so it's it's just totally accelerated that transition um, to to e-commerce 
Um, but so, it's, okay, so e-commerce as a space is high growth. Okay, so that's good. And then if you think about, um, say, from a merchant's perspective, there are, there are lots of kind of, um, you know, different parts to that that value chain so if, if you're a merchant you um uh you know you to acquire your customers you've got to advertise presumably on facebook or google or amazon and that's basically it um for for active you know product searches it's it's it's, it's google and amazon and for sort of more passive um customer acquisition and targeted acquisition it's facebook um, you are probably running a website these days on Shopify who have made it like super easy to set up your e-commerce uh, website. Um, they, they reckon you can do it in just a matter of hours. You are probably having your orders fulfilled either by Shopify or Amazon. Um, your, when your customers come and buy things from your website, um, your payments are being processed by Stripe, which is a private company. Um, but what is Stripe doing? Stripe is processing the payment and ultimately um, paying away a good chunk of their economics to Visa and MasterCard. And so there are, you know, there are lots of different parts of this value chain. But if you sort of analyze each of them separately, the, the customer acquisition component is a space which is growing with GMB or gross merchandise value, sort of total revenues which are transacted online, you know, a, a, a probably a, a roughly constant um, percentage of, of those sales will be spent on Facebook and, and Google and Amazon. And the barriers to entry in that space are as high as they can possibly be. You know, there's no chance, or, or never say never, but, you know, there is little chance that, that uh, a competitor can recreate Facebook or recreate, um, you know, Google paid search or anything like that. So um, that's a very protected space uh, and and a, a disproportionate share of the economics um, will, will flow to them. If you think about um, the payment processes such as, such as a Stripe, that's way more competitive. So you've got Stripe in there, you've got PayPal in there, you've, you've got, um, you've got others. And as it is, they have to pay away, you know, a big chunk of their economics to Visa and MasterCard, which have, Again, the highest barriers to entry as you can possibly you can possibly find um, in terms of the global payment network. So, um, and the merchant itself, if you think about you know what are the barriers to entry of becoming a merchant, they're as low as they can possibly be. You know, you and I could create our e-commerce website literally by lunchtime. Um, so there's enormous competition in that space. So different parts of the same space. So e-commerce is a space growing rapidly. But the really attractive parts in that space are on the digital advertising side, customer acquisition side, as well as on the um, on the payment side. But particularly in terms of the uh, the payment network side. So, not surprisingly, you'd say what 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 names does Montica hold in the portfolio? So Montica owns Facebook and Google and Amazon, and then on the payment side, um, Montica owns uh, Visa and Mastercard. But you know, Montica does not own, for example, uh, PayPal, which don't get me wrong, not a bad business, but just not the the very best of the best business in that instance. That's a brilliant breakdown uh, <laughs> of a very uh, what probably feels 
easy to use to the consumer, which is the most attractive part, I guess. It's easy to use. It's fantastic. I did laugh when you were talking about the four years worth of consumption in 90 days because I feel like I made my own personal contribution to that. With <laughs> yeah, we all did. <laughs> <laughs> kids at home, suddenly you realise you need a lot of stuff. It, um, <laughs> you suddenly appreciate schools a lot more. Uh, uh, but you're, as a consumer, you're using all of these things. I think a lot of investors now one change that's been dramatic in global investing over the last 10 years is the the names that you were talking about are suddenly accessible and familiar. You know, if you wanted to invest in the US 20 years ago, you had probably not had any real experience with JP Morgan or Wells Fargo or uh, any of the other sort of big names, you would know J&J, but you wouldn't necessarily know the other businesses. So it's really opaque to invest in them. Whereas now as an investor, you probably have daily or hourly experience with a lot of the big companies and the ones that you were just talking about would be very, very familiar to people. Yeah. And and look, what I'd say about that is, uh, you know, there's the names that I've spoken about so far are pretty well known, um, even if the, every single part of these businesses are not fully understood, you know, the, the general gist of what they do is, is pretty widely understood. There's perhaps a, a temptation out there, particularly at the moment, to say, well, you know, they're sort of the the big guys who have sort of had their time in the sun and now it's, now it's time for the sort of the, the younger tech startups to, to really shine. And in many cases that is true, but in many cases in the fullness of time that we believe that will not be true. And it really does come back to these strengthening advantages, particularly around data and scale um, that these that these you know mega tech companies have, um, which are just going to continue to strengthen and enable them to be able to um, create new businesses and and new profitable growth opportunities that sort of are not in their core business today. And actually, with the, the you know there has been, for those who overanalyze the tech space, um, as, as we do, uh, you know, there has been a little bit of a rotation out of the bigger names and into some of the smaller names. And so, if anything, it's a it's a great sort of opportunity to add to those, um, you know, in, in in your portfolio potentially. One question I have. Um given your point about these big winners likely to keep on winning, right? You know, the the concept of a monopoly in a somewhat complex market, right? It's not like a monopoly back in the old days when it was oil and you would just mm. own all the oil and therefore you had a monopoly on all the oil in that particular area or whatever it was. And so the, um, the big antitrust stuff that happened in the US in the early 20th century is much more complex these days. But uh, I wonder how much risk there is of regulatory oversight and they do seem to be getting called into an awful lot of Senate committees and, um, and Congress uh, Congress hearings and so on. Do you have any thoughts or concerns about that? Yeah, so there's, there's certainly a lot of, I mean, as we know, a lot of noise um, about regulation both in, in in China and the US. I mean, in, in China, the... the, the um, quite topical just in the last few days i've had the whole thing with you know alibaba being fined was around two and a half billion us dollars which is you know a gigantic fine on the face of it but tiny in comparison to the you know 250 billion us dollars that was wiped off its market cap over the last like i don't know six months or so so it's in a sense it's a good case study because we what we seem to observe over the years is that um, the overreaction in stock prices around regulation um, has been 
at least to date, has been far stronger than what is inevitable, what has ultimately sort of come out at the end of the day in terms of fines and, and changes and, and whatnot. Um, that, so that's certainly the case with Alibaba. Um, there's obviously a lot of noise, you know, every day with Facebook. It's, it's like the world's, you know, politician's favourite punching bag. And, I mean, don't get me wrong, they've, they've got some, you know, from a societal perspective, there are some genuine issues there around um, the appropriateness of certain advertising and certain, um, you know, algorithmic quirks, uh, which, which you know, they can it can be debated and, and fine tuned and whatnot. But in terms of what drives, you know, shareholder value, I think um, our experience to date, at least, has been that a lot of the regulation, like the noise around regulation, gets just drastically overweighted uh, in the minds of investors and things that really drive value, such as new profitable growth opportunities and growth options in the future, systematically underweighted in the minds of investors. So, you know, let's just take Facebook as a quick example. Um, Substantially all of their business today is just digital advertising. So you would absolutely expect if they went out there and tried to buy, you know, five other digital advertisers, they would get blocked by the, you know, on, on antitrust grounds. Um, and that would be totally reasonable. But if you think about where, you know, the big growth opportunities for Facebook are over the coming years, you know, it's in e-commerce. So facilitating e-commerce transactions within the Facebook properties, it's in what they call the creator economy. So, um, you know, creators uh, connecting with their fans um, and, you know, inside the Facebook properties and, and you know, creators monetizing their fans, you know, through either subscriptions or like like tips, which they call stars. You can sort of donate tips to, to your creator uh, and I'm sure they'll bring out others as well and, and Facebook can sort of take a cut of that, but it's not advertising in that instance. And then, of course, you've got, you know, the whole... Um, push into the, the world's next computing platform. So, you know, virtual reality and augmented reality. Um, and, you know, again, totally different to, to digital advertising. So even though these businesses are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, um, in many cases, they, their growth are stemming from like new entirely different businesses. Uh, and Amazon was another great case study of that over the years as well. You know, it started out selling books and then, of course, you know, it's <laughs> arguably its most valuable business today is Amazon Web Services, which is a an enterprise cloud business. So these, and that's kind of what what we've discovered is, is coming back to what, where we were, you know, at the start of the conversation. You know, our observation is just, just for the world's very best and most advantaged businesses, they just have this ability to continue to leverage their their advantages in new ways um, over the years uh, to create new businesses and new revenue streams, and uh, you, you've just got to be as an investor. It's it's a really big call to you know exclude them from your portfolio too early because they they tend to surprise to the upside. So you keep talking about the world's best businesses and how they're leveraging their strengths, and it is it's an extraordinarily powerful story. Like it's fascinating. We've all not even been on the sidelines. We've been interacting with these businesses for 10 years, maybe 20 years, depending on which one it is. Um, and and we've observed it and yet a lot of us have been a little bit blind to to their growth, I guess, in a lot of ways. You, you're there 
you know, tinkering away every day, Googling, uh, (laughs) (laughs) finding stuff or whatever, and just not, not appreciating how powerful it is. How much of that do you put down to the leadership of the business and how closely do you look at the leadership? Again, that's such a good question. I mean, people have such different views on this. Um, you know, some people will be like, oh, it's all about the founder. And, and you know, I looked the manager in the eyes and I could just tell he was a superstar or she was a superstar. Um, our, our view is slightly different to that. Um, I, I think uh, there are a, a small handful of just true, truly exceptional leaders and managers, um, and they have just been utterly instrumental. So, I mean, Jeff Bezos and the way that he's transformed Amazon multiple times and created these new businesses, um, like I'm absolutely convinced that's a Jeff Bezos thing. That's not a that's not an Amazon thing. Um, Reed Hastings, what he's done, how he's transformed Netflix from you know literally posting DVDs you know ten years ago to to what Netflix is today. Again, an, another. I believe that's like a, a Reed Hastings thing, not 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 a Netflix thing. Um, but for I think for for most businesses, our our observation is that the business, the the strength of the business is probably more important. Like the business and the industry and the technology uh, is probably more important than than the leadership team at the top. I'll, I'll probably be criticised for saying that, but uh, in a sense, it's good news though, right? Because it, it means that I mean managers and leaders change all the time, and you know um, they change careers, get old, you know retire, all this sort of stuff. And, and so you you don't want your investment, which um, you know when you value these businesses, you're valuing them effectively into perpetuity, right? Like you're not just valuing them over the over the period that the current CEO will will be at the at the helm. Um, so you, you, you don't want your valuation to disappear once the, once the founder leaves or anything like that. So, so yeah, I, 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 it's a mixed bag, but I think usually the business and the industry matter a lot more, um, but there are just a, just a handful of exceptions. Zuckerberg's the same as well. I know everyone loves to hate him, but I mean, what, what he has achieved is extraordinary. And I think what's even more extraordinary than what he's achieved is how hungry he remains um, today to continue to to grow the business and and you know dominate so many new spaces, um, you know maintaining that hunger after you know creating hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars worth of value that's um, that's pretty unique I think. It's an interesting perspective, and I do appreciate it because I, I find the cult of the entrepreneur in the US quite a quite a fascinating phenomenon. It's really it's really culty. Like people are quite mm. obsessed with the founders, and they uh, if you spend any time on Twitter or any sort of similar forums, people are obsessed, right? And there there is a bit of a sense of infallibility about some. Elon Musk is the one who tends right. to, to attract yeah, the most rabid fans, I guess. But people are really this idea that an individual embodies so much is quite fascinating to me. Well, you're spot on. And actually it it relates a little bit back to this creator economy sort of boom that has just started. And we mentioned with respect to Facebook, we'll, we'll play a big role in that and Spotify will as well in terms of, you know, connecting creators with their fans and then 
you know, giving them the, the creators the tools and the platforms to be able to, you know, engage with their fans and then ultimately monetize their fans. I, you know, in a sense, we're seeing that already in the capital market because, you know, what you described with the, you know, many of the Silicon Valley, you know, cultish followings of various founders and, you know, people are so fanatical about Elon Musk. I mean, it is, it's not bad, but it's just these are fans of creators and these fans are kind of voting with their checkbooks and, you know, these successful creators are really, you know, raising money in the capital markets based on their sort of, you know, stardom for want of a better word. Uh, and we're seeing it with all of these SPACs as well. You know, think of how many famous people are, who, you know, unrelated to business are, are raising SPACs. Um, I, I almost fell off my chair. Uh, it was probably a month ago now when I, I saw the Bloomberg headline that Colin Kaepernick was raising a SPAC. And Colin Kaepernick was the quarterback for the, um, <laughs> for the like, you might, need to ex- you might need to explain to people what SPACs are because I don't think we've discussed it on the podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you haven't done that one. That would mm. probably be a good show. But uh, anyway. So <laughs> I don't think we want to encourage it though, right? <laughs> well, it's, it, it's a thing. Yeah. Well, it's, it seems to be cooling down a bit now and it does go in cycles, but probably every 10 years or so we go through a SPAC cycle. And SPAC stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company, and it's also known as a blank check company. So, you, uh, you, you know, if if I want to create the Andrew Mackin SPAC, I I just IPO a company called you know called the Andrew Mackin SPAC, and if I have enough followers, um, you know, if I can sort of generate enough hype, then I can raise you know X hundred million dollars in in this company. And the reason why it's called a, these these things are often called blank check companies is because you've you've raised the money in the company and now the the cash is literally just sitting there in the bank account of the company and now I control the company and I can do whatever I want with that money and so you know the the shareholders in the stack are, are just trusting me to you know do something logical with that money but I can basically do whatever I want so I can go and you know I can go and acquire another business I can merge with another business I can do whatever I want so you know it, it certainly has there's a you know there's a role for it um, under certain circumstances um, and and uh, you know investors your money managers can use these tools to capitalize on investment opportunities and whatnot but that's not what we're seeing today we're seeing you know we're seeing footballers raise facts and rappers raising facts and <laughs> <laughs> so just in and case again, you were I, wondering, uh, anyone uh, yeah. listening, we don't have them in Australia. In Australia, if you raise money, you've got to deploy it within two years. You've got to tell people what it's for. Uh, you don't have this uh, kind of wild west of just giving your money to someone and then hoping they do an okay job. The track record of SPACs is usually pretty average during periods right now <laughs> like this. Right, right. Um, but, but it's not surprising in the context of, you know, this creator economy and fans want to connect with their creators and if that means buying shares in their SPAC, they'll do it. So, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a fascinating time to be alive, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is it is amazing. I remember a lot of people, the other statistic I heard the other day, which is unrelated to SPACs and somewhat unrelated to the creator economy, but tells you a lot about how people are investing in the US, uh, that they've had more inflows into share funds in the last, in this is specifically in the US, in the last six months than they had in the prior 10 years, some extraordinary yeah, wow. number. So the 
the scenario that we're currently facing into is that it's uh, it's a pretty hot market over there. Australia is a little bit, a little bit calmer, a little bit more benign, which does lead into the next question. So you've talked about the best companies in the world and how it's very possible to believe they're overvalued and miss the upside. Is there anywhere excluding SPACs that you think there might be real pockets of overvaluation? Oh yes, overvaluation. Um, look, so so there are. I mean, we've we've talked about um, a few of the businesses that Montica owns today, um, but I wouldn't want uh, your listeners to think, oh wow, they're just you know buying you know every famous tech company um, on the basis that they'll just continue to win forever. I mean, we are continually rejecting uh, investment opportunities, even in the tech space, um, on the basis of either, you know, can't get enough confidence around, you know, the probabilities of said business winning over the long term or around uh, just valuation. So, yeah, great business. We'll, we'll, we'll do really well into the future, but we just can't get there on valuation ground. So, uh, I mean, there have been quite a few recent examples, including some recent IPOs as well. So, uh, take Airbnb, which obviously we all know what Airbnb is. Absolutely wonderful, wonderful business um, with very strong advantages um, and uh, and sort of the the you know we have a high degree of confidence that in the long term they will continue to be you know the primary sort of Airbnb platform, but we just can't get there on valuation. So um, you know it's if if the stock halved tomorrow, great, we'd be buying the stock, but we just can't get there today. Snowflake was another another sort of um, recent IPO which attracted a lot of headlines. And again, you know, absolutely great business. This is all about you know um, enterprise data sharing and um, which is a which is a, a and data management, which is obviously a really really important space and in, an increasingly important space going forward. But same same deal, like awesome business. We just couldn't get there on valuation, so we we passed. And then even of the, you know, some of the more commonly known names, um, you know, PayPal, we mentioned before, uh, it's it's a really good business, probably not the best business in the world, but it's, it's really, really good. Um, but again, just, you know, cannot get there on, on valuation ground. So it's, it doesn't doesn't have a place uh, in Montica's portfolio. So, you know, there are a few examples, but but there are there are many the sort of overvalued businesses out there today, no question. Andrew, Montica might be a new name for a few of our investors, or they might have been just saying it wrong for ages. <laughs> Can you tell people how to find out a bit more about you? Yeah, probably the easiest is just to go to the website. So it's montaka.com. Um, so it's M-O-N-T-A-K-A.com. Uh, and we we do a lot of writing as well. You know, we, we pretty much write up all of our thoughts on, you know, whether it's individual stocks or industries or events in the news and whatnot. So, um, for those that do like to read, you know, different perspectives on on what's happening and, and what we're thinking, um, it's you can find it on the website, it's, or you can just go to like montega.com forward slash blogs, uh, and that's that's where it all is. Yeah, so I will reiterate that uh, for you. So I found uh, this paper that you had written, the the two part sort of why we're still bullish on global technology, and uh, you articulated many of the things we've discussed today. It was brilliant to read. I love reading, love podcasts, but I like to read as well. And uh, and it's fantastic the way you guys do kind of put your thoughts down on paper for people who prefer that medium. Yeah, thank you. 
Andrew Macken from Montecu Global Investments. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Thanks, Gemma. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for listening also. As always, we love hearing from you. I got some awesome feedback the other day, uh, some comments on the previous podcast. We love getting your questions and any ideas for future topics. Please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.